Trident Wargaming. Build it, paint it, play it. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Trident Wargaming Podcast, the uh, official podcast of the Age of Sigmar Trident Wargaming Slowgrow. <laughs> and we're really excited to talk this week specifically about Age of Sigmar. And if I could say anything about it specifically, I think it would be that it is the game I wish 40k was. And if I can't convince you why you should try it this week, you got to come out and play a game. But before we get into that topic on why it's the greatest game, uh, mechanically with rules or via lore, we are going to have a little bit of a preamble ramble and we're going to play some Mary Fuck Kill. So here are the rules of the game. Uh, Daniel, you're going to go first and then uh, Aiden, you're going to go hey. second. Uh, but I guess I should introduce our guest on the show before we even get into that. We are joined with uh, Daniel Schneider, also known as, uh, is it Smashed Head Art or, or? Yeah, Smashed Head Studios. There's too many Daniels out there. So. Smash S Studios. Uh, he's done, he's, I guess, famous for his art on Age of Sigmar, but other than that, he is a local Age of Sigmar community leader. And we're also joined today with uh, Mr. Aiden Vollmer, a uh, new Age of Sigmar community member and 40k veteran. That I am. Hi, guys. So, Merry Fuck Kill. Uh, everyone kind of knows the game, but if you've never played it before, we're going to give a selection of three. You have to choose to marry one, fuck one, and, you know, kill one. So our first one, uh, Daniel, this one goes to you, is Alariel the Everqueen, Marathi, and Kragnos. Oh, oh, Alariel, uh, Marathi, Kragnos. Um, oh. Okay, uh, marry Alariel because she's uh, a nice lady. She's got great gams. Um, if you've seen the models, she's got great gams. She looks cuddly. Her beetle looks like a delight, like a giant Labrador beetle. Um, so, you know, just, yeah, very wifey material. Um, and then Marathi would probably be the fuck. Um, because I feel like, you know, with her experience as a dark elf, that's very Slanesh adjacent. Um, it's going to be a good time. Uh, but you don't want to stick around forever because uh, she's going to turn on you. And Kragnos is just... Uh, I just imagine a battering ram, and uh, so that doesn't appeal to me in any way. And he hates dragons, so that dude can get the heck out of here. Plus, he's not uh, a Beast of Chaos model, so he can get the heck out of here, too. Yeah, that's no good. All right, uh, Aiden, this one goes to you. Uh, Mary Fuck Kill, Gods of Chaos Edition. So we got Nurgle, Slanesh, and Tazinch. Frankly, just because Korn is too obvious. Right, okay. Um... So I'm not going to go with, I think, the obvious answer of uh, fucking Slanesh. I think that that might turn bad very quickly. Um, so I think I'm going to kill Slanesh. I think Nurgle's all about, you know, commitment. So I think marrying Nurgle makes a lot of sense, right? You have that for long term. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to get a lot of what you want out of Slanesh, I think, without the, uh, the unhappy ending with Zinch. So I think I'm going to go with Zinch for that. You know, you might get uh, like a mutation. Yeah, maybe, but that's fine. That's fine. Who doesn't have one nowadays? All right. Last one is uh, Death Edition, so I'll throw it to both of you. I'm kind of curious if you're going to uh, like agree or disagree on this. 
so um, it is Mary Fuck Kill, Lady Olander, Lady Annika, and Bella Dama Volga. I'll let you go first, Aiden. Sure. Okay. Uh, so Belladom is my lady, but um, I'm pretty sure that that wolf she's riding is her husband. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna be respectful of that, um, and, and what, maybe murder? yeah, and maybe kill her. Um, <laughs> um, I think Lady Annika. I don't know too much about her, but she is not the most uh, cuddly looking person. So maybe we'll. Uh, fuck her and get over with it. Uh, and then Lady Alinder, I think we're going to marry because she's, I don't know, there forever, I suppose. Same thing with Nurgle. She has the wedding veil, right? She's got the gown. Yeah, I guess. She's already like ready yeah. to go. Well, I'm uh, never going gonna... to... I'm going to... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to go opposite of Aiden. Um, <laughs> like, o Oleander is way, way, way too much baggage. Like... There's just way too much there, so kill her. Um, she's just whiny um, and has a lot going on, so I don't want to do. Was the with age that. of Stormcast Eternal like a million years or something like that too? Like, you really want to go through that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and then uh, Annika. I agree with Aiden on Annika. I'm gonna uh, fuck her. Uh, she's got she's got the little mask, so it's a little coy, a little mysterious. <laughs> I like that. She's creative with her hair. Um, so, you know, she's adventurous. So, yeah, there's a lot of good, good positives there. And then, uh, Belladama, uh, she's just like, uh, who wouldn't want to marry someone that is basically going to be a grandma that cooks you cupcakes and muffins? Um, at least that's what I choose to believe so that I can enter into that marriage on a positive note. <laughs> All right. I'm actually going to, uh, we're going to marry Belladama Volga. I think that, you know, she's going to take care of you. She's got that, that, you know, that motherly instinct, and I think that's kind of what you want. Uh, I'm going to kill Lady Annika because I don't trust that vampire not to suck my blood. Uh, and I'm going to fuck Lady Ollander because I want to try out that ghost us, you know? <laughs> so we're going to go through that. But, <clears throat> ghost us aside, we're really here to talk about his Age of Sigmar. Uh, our first topic today is just like a round table about Age of Sigmar, but specifically, it's not game mechanic related. That's topic two. So, then the very first thing, you know, we, we got a slow girl coming up. There's a lot of people who have a lot of interest in it. And I think people come to this game for a variety of different reasons. So, my first question, and we'll start at Aiden here because he's newer to it, and then we'll go to Daniel after, is like, what is the big draw of Age of Sigmar to you, like, not game mechanic-wise? What's the people? Like, what's the appeal? For anyone who's Age of Sigmar curious out there in the wild, like, like, why, why have you come to it? And, and what is GW doing well to kind of make you want to come to it? Yeah, so I think, the, I think the obvious answer is the model range, right? Like, you have in fantasy and kind of an, an undetermined um, aesthetic that 40k has. Um, you can kind of go anywhere with it, and we've seen that since, since AOS launched. Um, that's why I think, like, a lot of the... A lot of the more popular, uh, like higher end painting YouTubers, like we're talking like Vince V, like Miniac, even like Cult of Paint, I think, are all also like Age of Sigmar players. Um, and they kind of lend towards that system. Like I know Vince talks all the time about how he isn't the the biggest fan of 40k as a game and he can paint a model every once in a while, but like AOS is where you want to go if you want 
um, depth and choice, right? Okay. And so I think that's like the big draw. I think a lot of people, like especially the like hobby focused people, tend towards um, you know being AOS curious, like a lot of us in the community are. Like I have been for for about a year now, um, but just don't have the opportunity because of you know maybe your community is not on it yet, or maybe everyone's confused about the system, or maybe the system's just complicated at the time. Don't have like a good way in. Um, to getting on top of those models. So I think, you know, going back to the slow grow, I think this is a great opportunity for people to kind of expand their hobby skill set, I suppose, beyond painting power armor and uh, explore other textures, explore more complicated models, um, as well as, you know, just learning the game. I wonder to what extent, like, the, uh, the, the brighter fantasy-themed colors is part of what makes it more of an appealing system, like, for, for people who like to paint, for people who like art. If it's more fun to play with those like elf colors or those bright colors, like even what normally a lot of lines like the scale line calls their fantasy colors, uh, if, if that's what it is, rather than, you know, that grim dark metallic setting of like, you know, Necrons are this dark color and Space Marines come in this saturated primary, uh, and you know, Tyranids are this dark primary kind of thing. Dan, what's your thought? What's what's the draw? Do you agree with Aiden that it's mostly just like a fantastic model range? with uh, like wonderful colors and people who are aspiring artists, does it go deeper than that? For me, that's a big part of it. Um, there's two things, though, that are really big for me, which is both the models and the lore. Um, the lore really grabbed me first, um, and then the models kind of like... Because when I jumped in, it was still really early second edition. So we had... Um, some of the model ranges were gorgeous, like just beyond gorgeous. That's when the Night Haunt had first dropped. And then some and, of the model ranges are clan rats. Yeah, yeah. And even at that time, like my two main armies are Seraphon and Beast of Chaos. And Seraphon at that time were like, oh, we've got one really cool big dinosaur, and everyone else is real old and doofy looking. Um, so it was the lore that got me in a big time. Um, and then the model range is like pretty much would be just echoing everything that Aiden said. Um, but uh, after that, the for me, it was what really got me to stick around and actually keep playing the game beyond just like, because as an artist, I love the models and I love painting them and I love converting them and I love kit bashing them. But what got me to stick around and kept it as my favorite game is the rules because it just feels like fun comes first. There's constantly this like emphasis on having just wild, crazy fun. You know, I remember. I think that was part of their original game design because when they first released the first edition of Age of Sigmar, they did have some silly rules in there. And I think I wonder if that has caused like for some people not to cause that jump because they remember that as that 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 silly system where if you got up and danced, you you got some special things, but. Maybe from its inception, what they were trying to do was not have that cutthroat uh, style of system that, you know, their other major game system does have sometimes, and some people consider it, a problem. Whether that's a problem or not, I think depends on where you, whether you have that pre-game conversation and, uh, you know, that, that agreement, that social contract of what you're getting into. But uh, if the game is designed from the ground up to be played in a different way, it might kind of alleviate that problem. But both of you did hit on something I want to talk about as well, is, is lore. Uh, Age of Sigmar, actually, I loved Warhammer Fantasy. I got in it, the same edition, they killed it about like a year before. And by the time I was ready to, with my fully painted Wood Elf army, the game was dead. 
and I got in at like mm. the end times, which was a wild time. The, the people tell me that was not Warhammer Fantasy, uh, but like I thought it was wild. The story was progressing; it was crazy. Uh, and then I watched Age of Sigmar come out, and I was upset because my models felt like they were invalid. Uh, but I loved that old fantasy lore, and I loved how in Age of Sigmar or or, or Warhammer Fantasy at the time they weren't afraid to kill characters off, and there was lineages like Manfred von Karstein was dead. And now, you know, Manfred von Karstein was in charge, and he was a fucking badass, or, um, like, it didn't really matter who, or, I think Karl Franz died and came back as a god, but there was an established canon, and as I come into Age of Sigmar, I love seeing, like, especially reading the Lumineth stuff, some of this lore, uh, come in, like, uh, you know, I mean, Teclis and, and, and some of these other people are old Warhammer fantasy souls, and they they completely address the fact that they were alive back then, or that they've come through, and they start bringing other you know bits and pieces. And it it doesn't feel like it's cheesily done. It feels like a callback and a reward for someone with a bit of experience for some of this you know old forbidden knowledge. Uh, so my question to you, and we'll start with Daniel, and then we'll go to Aiden here for this: is what is your favorite bit of lore about Age of Sigmar right now? Like, if there's one piece of lore you could share that you think is like the coolest thing. Um, like, so for example, for me is I love the, uh, this great fall that the Lumineth experience, how they kind of wrote that in there for as like a, what the hell were they doing for the first 2000 years or, or however long the first two ages. Um, and I, I love how that's a mirror of, you know, that 40 K setting, but also like a Tolkien setting. And it makes me wonder if we take a look at fantasy as a whole, if elves are best written in like a post empire sort of way on the decline when they're no longer at their best, and they're struggling with what we would call, you know, their humanity. But your favorite lore, Daniel. Um, so I'm going to try and pick one moment out of this, but basically my favorite part of the Sigmar lore is that it's this tragedy, uh, it's this comedy of tragedies, and it's all because pretty much every character is incredible incredibly flawed and petty except for the one straight man in the entire universe which in 40k our straight man is basically Gilliman who is just looking at the insanity going like why is everyone crazy and trying to like balance that and in Sigmar your straight man is Archeon which is an incredible and awesome way to look at it like Archeon is the only guy that is just walking around like why is everyone so incompetent and petty and flawed and just like i just want to do my plans and everyone ruins it um so like my favorite probably pettiness moment um is kind of two parts um i'll try and keep it tight is loved recently like nagash is the ultimate king of petty everything he does in this setting is just him trying to jealously get one up on everyone else the osiarch bone reapers are a one up on the stormcast eternals like he creates the necroquake well the black pyramid in order to just like screw over sigmar because he's pissed at him for taking some of his souls um but then his whole plan is, like as this plan is going on it's one of my favorite parts in the lore is the the three chaos gods that are basically free at this point, which is Korn, Nurgle, and Zinch, because Slanesh has been trapped by uh, the elf gods. Um, the three of them are like, hey, we gotta do something. Us three chaos gods that are left, 
we got to do something. And the whole time, basically, while they're discussing this and figuring out what they need to do to stop Slanesh or stop uh, <clears throat> Nagash, is you have basically the Great Horned Rat, who is canonically now the fifth Chaos God in Age of Sigmar, is sitting outside a window, basically, staring at them, going like, hey, I'm here, I'm right here. <laughs> Why are none of you including me in this meeting of the Chaos Gods? And they constantly treat him like this redheaded stepchild of Age of Sigmar and their Chaos Gods, and no one ever acknowledges him, and he's so, so pissed about it that he will do anything to just ruin everyone else's life until they acknowledge him. And I just love that, like, that's, like, a perfect, perfect bit of, uh, like, what makes Sigmar so good is that because of their flaws and their pettiness, no one will ever accomplish anything of great worth because someone will do something stupid just to spite everyone else. Teclas <laughs> could have done something great, but he was so petty in trying to prove that he was better than Nagash that he goes and basically shoves him into a locker like a nerd and is like, yeah, I'm the best at at magic, while Ilariel is like, hey, there was a bigger problem that your brother's dealing with, and you're going off and showing off that you're like, supreme magic guy for no reason at all. And so it's just like that constant ongoing thread of the story makes me so happy, and I love it. What is this bigger problem that you speak of in, like, because, you know, I'm reading the lore, and there, there's rumors that, yeah. uh, uh, that his brother Tyrion is doing other shit, and I'm like, are they going to release some Tyrion elves attached to the Lumineth? Stop! I can only get so hard. Uh, basically, yeah. Like, and that's another thing that I love about the lore with Sigmar is they tease things a lot. Um, so the Ideneth Deepkin were teased a lot before they were released. So they were teased a lot in the lore. Same thing with the Caradron Overlords; they were teased in the lore before their release. Um, and then same thing with the Sons of Bamet. Sons of Bamet was like such a long, long tease. And they've been teasing two other armies, um, majorly teasing two other armies. One of them is the Chaos Dwarfs, but the other one is Malarian's elves. And Malarian has, he's the god of shadow now. He was formerly Malekith from uh, fantasy. Um, and he's considered probably the most powerful of the elf gods. Well, he was chosen as their their at the end of the the when the when the world was breaking in the old fantasy thing. Like he ended up being the like I don't know the prophecy foretold essentially, right? I don't remember how exactly the Phoenix Lord, the Phoenix Lord, yeah. And yeah, he's been very like just kind of off quietly doing his own thing. Every once in a while, he gives aid to everyone. Um, like, he gave Sigmar this arena to train his Stormcast in, but there's a little hidden secret in there that uh, he hid the fact that he can now watch what happens with the Stormcast the whole time from that arena. So it's the arena for Sigmar to train his, his greatest champions in, but Malarian kind of hid a s secret hidden cam in there so that he can keep tabs on what Sigmar is doing the whole time. And that's kind of hinted at what, uh, Tyrion is doing is that he is probably dealing with Malarian because Malarian is now the god of shadows so who better to be doing something very devious behind the scenes than probably Malarian I love that and I'm really hoping we'll see eventually one day a Tyrion and you know the the, the high elf units that accompany him um, I hope that 
what you were leading at with uh, the Skaven and their god is like this fifth chaos god. And in some Warhammer settings, they do have that fifth chaos god as like the god of actual chaos. Not dedicated to one thing, but just dedicated to completely fucking everything all the time. And that makes perfect sense for Skaven. Aiden, what is your favorite little tidbit of Warhammer lore, and why is it what I'm thinking Daniel perfectly set you up for? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some foundational AOS stuff. Assuming that everybody listening to this isn't as well-versed as maybe Dan is, um, the second edition started with this event called the Necroquake, which um, was, to my understanding, unbelievably important for the realms as a whole, right? Uh, each realm in AOS has something called Realmstone. Um, it changes, I believe, uh, between realm to realm. So like for your Lumineth, Arthur, that's where they get the, uh, the Aether Quartz, right? That is the, the Realmstone of the Realm of Life. Um, and then to contrast that in the Realm of Death and Shayesh, there's a stuff called Grave Sand, right? Which obviously takes the form of, of sand. Uh, it's concentrated death magic. It messes up everybody that it touches. Like you mentioned earlier about that, um, that Stormcast guy that Lydia Linder aged, you know, a thousand years or whatever in a second, that was the effect of Gravesend, right? So it's, it's potent stuff if it can do that to, you know, one of Sigmar's finest. Um, so Nagash had a great plan. He wanted to, you know, you know, while wink winking at everybody and being like, oh, you know, I'm not such a bad guy or whatever. He enacted this millennia long plan to concentrate all of the Gravesend in Shayesh into one point. And so what he noticed was, you know, a skeleton goes up, it picks up a pouch of grave sand, it disintegrates, not good, right? It could, a skeleton could only really travel about a single grain of grave sand at a time. So what he did was he amassed as many skeletons as he possibly could. And grain by grain, he would transport all of the grave sand from across the realm into one point on and Shayesh, right in the, the middle-ish. Um, always good. Everything was going great until uh, this clan of Skaven that had been uh, chilling, kind of doing Skaven things under one of the, uh, the cities, dug a tunnel into where all of this gravesand was being hoarded, uh, this big old hole. And that caused the Necroquake. Uh, Nagash you know, might tell you, oh, no, no, that was my, my grand plan or whatever to unleash the, uh, the night haunt on, on uh, you know, the, the realms, but really it was the Skaven. Uh, it was it was completely an accident, um, and I think that is more than anything the most like old school 40k lore thing that I've heard so far. Is yeah, you know, there's this great deity, they have all these plans or whatever, but these fucking rats come along and 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 ruin everything, and it's just the right amount of silly. Uh, you know, I there's other throwbacks too, like. Uh, Teclas, after his battle with Nagash, trying to essentially have a, who's got the biggest wizard penis of all time, uh, ends up getting like you know wounded as as a god by by Nagash, and it still hurts him for quite some time. And anyone who remembers Teclas in, in Warhammer Fantasy, who was one of the greatest mages of all time, he was like perpetually sickly, right? He had to take constant potions, and uh, he was frail, and his brother always had to fight for him. And they're kind of teasing at that too. You know, he's mortally or immortally rather wounded. Uh, and he's not as powerful as he once could be because of this thing. I love how it all ties together. I like how all three of us have kind of had something that is all centered around, uh, you know, I guess Nagash here being a central character. He's pretty Which important. maybe he should be <laughs> with that fucking gorgeous model. 
Mm-hmm. Sure, I cut you off, uh, Aiden. Oh, no, I was just saying, yeah, no, as he, he probably should be, right? Like, he's one of the big, I mean, less so, I guess, in third, but he's one of the big movers and shakers. So I'm glad there's a lot surrounding him in the, in the, uh, what's this, what's this age called, Dan? The, the current one? So we're still, uh, this is the age well, of I guess Sigma, we're in, right? There's nothing more specific. Yeah. Like we're, we're kind of coming into the era of the beast is what they're calling it now. So I think we've, I can't remember if we've officially, um, changed from the age of Sigmar. I think it's still technically age of Sigmar because there's like different, uh, subsections of the age of Sigmar. The first one was the realm gate wars. That's what opened up the age of Sigmar. And then we had uh, the era of the Necroquake, and now we're coming into the era of the Beast. Right, and it's um, nice which that we is have... Alariel... Oh, sorry. No, that's really okay. Uh, it's just nice that we have um, like a contemporary understanding of Nagash for newer players, and we're not just drawing on what was established, you know, twenty years ago or whatever. Um, these these characters, like probably Techless, I don't know, but probably Techless, and for sure Nagash. Uh, keep being reinvented in in the narrative. It's it's really good for, I think, connecting um, quote unquote fantasy or or old, or old world players and uh, and you know newer players. You know, uh, I was listening to a podcast that I actually like really love. It's the Miniac podcast where him and uh, Ninjon talk every two weeks, and uh, they're they're both you know interesting more enthusiasts. They were one of the reasons why I wanted to get into it. Uh, they were kind of selling it, but also they're great painters, and uh, it's kind of a hobby-focused podcast. If you've never tried that, try that out. It's called Trapped Under Plastic, um, and and they were talking about how I, I guess it was Ninjon's critique that like Age of Sigmar doesn't have a mature lore, and they're hoping it's going to get better. I think all of us here are going to fundamentally disagree with that because the lore is already yeah. fucking good. <laughs> Absolutely, that's one of the big things they tell you about horror which kind of loosely maps onto like the grimdark thing that gw tries to do is like you have to have moments of levity and you know that is like unbelievably like, orcs are a great example right you have this this world uh, in 40k at least they have this world of like everybody's dying nobody's life is good people are you know eating recycled compost effectively of their of their hive mates and then you have the orcs where there is not a single serious story about the orcs and that makes everything uh the grimdark aspect of it so much more right if you just have constant noise you can't really discern what the, the gravity of each story is without that final comments about lore daniel uh pretty much kind of like going on that is that what i love about sigmar is the contrasts make each other better um, things like the uh, Lumineth are one of the best examples, where the Lumineth on their on their surface are like the super shiny. Like when you look at them, you're just like they're inspirational, they're aspirational. Like you want to be like them. You look at them and you're like those guys are cool. And then you hear the lore about how they fell um, and Teclis's arrogance and Teclis's basically inhumanity. Um, in leading to what the Idaneth became, and now how he's going down a different, uh, possibly worse path to make sure that the Lumineth don't become what the Idaneth became. And then you see what the Lumineth do with humans that come into their cities, and how they treat humanity and treat anyone that is not them. They are like, they're this very sinister type of xenophobic. 
and uh, it's it really like contrasts against that shininess that you see on the surface. So those contrasts in the lore to me make it more interesting where stuff like the gloom spike gets. Like, it's silly. They don't know how to make bottles, so they like to go and collect bottles as a form of currency, which is just, like, weird and ludicrous. But then also, how does the, like, Loon King get all of these great prophecies that lead him to, like, great advantages in battle? Oh, he collects wizards and basically breeds them as human mushrooms that he feeds, like, horrible concoctions to and keeps them, like, high as a kite while they're growing mushrooms and fungus out of their heads so that they can babble prophecies to him. Like, that's horrifying. I didn't even know about that one. I, yeah, I knew about the Lumineth, uh, but I didn't know about that one. Wild. All right. Uh, last bit, roundtable, uh, is just sell me your current faction you're playing. Like, what is the coolest aspect of the faction that someone who is AOS curious might not know? So, like, lore-wise... Um, you know, art-wise. And even here, I would throw in, you can throw in, if one of those lore things or art things includes a mechanic on the tabletop to go with it, and that's like, yeah, you love that, that's really part of it, you can throw that in there too. Uh, we'll go back to Daniel here, and then we'll go to Aiden afterwards. So sell me some, maybe Beast of Chaos, maybe Seraphon, I'm not sure, but sell, sell me it. What's, what's the draw? Why do, why do you love them? Uh, quick sell on Seraphon? They're big dinosaurs. Why don't like who doesn't love big dinosaurs but they're also masters of magic which is really cool um and then one of the things that i love about that is their play style represents that really well there's like really four ways to play them and it's each is vastly different from the other um and they do this really cool thing with the the new slam model is one of my favorite examples of this is every little easter egg on the slam model has a mechanic in the game that can be used and is also a tie back to their old lore because they're technically the oldest characters in Stigmar. Um, so that's really cool. But my favorite faction to sell people on is the Beast of Chaos. Beast of Chaos are so cool. They're <laughs> like to sell them in the serious way, they're a monster faction. If you love monsters and you love like horrors and stuff like that, they're great. Um, it's big giant uh, minotaurs. It's big giant like chimeras. It's these cockatrices like bullgores. These gores that are like cool and disgusting razor gores. Um, they're really cool and they can be any kind of animal. Like you think of a beast man of any type, like a tiger person, a shark person, uh, armadillo person, whatever. You can make that into a beast man, but the reason I really, really, really love them is Beasts of Chaos are the hipsters of chaos. Um, they, they are the OG chaos guys. Um, they were the first chaos in the mortal realms before the chaos gods. And they really judge you for the way that you like chaos because they enjoyed chaos before chaos was cool and hip. And they think it's really lame of you to follow one chaos god so much so that they will beat and like basically exile any beast of chaos that falls to one of the four chaos gods from their herds because they're like that's not chaotic of you to follow corn it's not chaotic to choose one path of chaos get out of here like they are sitting there in their like little beanies and their plaid shirts judging you for 
the like not enjoying chaos the way you should enjoy chaos. And I love that about them, that there's these weird hipsters of chaos. I didn't even know that. That's hilarious. I love that too. Are the are the are the are the Seraphon still from space? Are they still space dinosaurs or are they kind of retcon that out? <clears throat> yes, they are. They did um like they did a really good job with their lore in carrying them. So they are the original lizard folk from fantasy. Basically in fantasy when the end times happened and everything was going to hell, the lizard men were just like, you know what? Screw this. We kept this continent chaos free for so long. And then all you human folk came along and ruined everything. We're going to leave in our spaceships. And everyone was like, what? And it's like, yeah, it turns out their temples were spaceships. So they just flew off into the sky and left while the world blew up and left everyone else on their own. And they had been traveling for millennia just in space until they found uh, Draconith, the god beast that is like the dragon god beast in Sigmar. And they're like, hey, we're dinosaurs, kind of like dragons. And they're like, yeah, we, I kind of like dinosaurs too. And they became buddies. And then they just hang out in Azur. And then when Sigmar came along, eventually after a while, Draconith was like, oh, also there's these weird lizard people that have been chilling here with me for like millennia. And so they're in this weird spot where they only now in kind of like the era of the beast, they're starting to what they're called coalescing in the mortal realms. Before that, they basically couldn't acclimate to the mortal realms. So only the slan through their magic could get down to the mortal realms and they would be there. But then they were so powerful with their magic, they would just be like, okay, I remember what my army looked like and what they did. And so they would basically remember them into existence. And that was how they would fight as an army is it would be one actual slan and the rest of his army was just willed into existence. And so now they're starting to like, basically acclimatized special seraphon that are coalesced in the realms and that's what they're big uh in the in the game they have the realm shaper engine which is what's doing that it's basically the planets uh, or the different realms in order to make them uh adaptable or habitable for the seraphon to actually now exist there so you can play when you play seraphon you can play as the starborn which is still the ones that are kind of stuck up in the ships, but they just get remembered onto the Earth by their slam. Or you can play as the Coalesced, which are the ones that are kind of like colonizing the mortal realms and starting to come back there. Um, so they're really cool. Like, I absolutely love them. I'm so glad that we have an Age of Sigmar expert here with us. Because as, uh, as, as Dan's been talking, I've been like browsing the web store like, what the fuck is a Realm Shaper engine? Let's go look at this. <laughs> Holy shit! And then, uh, you know, I'm seeing other stuff, and I'm like, damn, I didn't know that the Beasts of Chaos have the coolest endless spell in that uh, yeah. that boar thing. All right, the question now goes to, to Aiden, and in case you've forgotten the question, it's just tell me your faction. Like, what is the coolest aspect of your faction who's someone that, you know, someone's AOS curious, and they're like, oh, man, I think that uh, Soul Blight's kind of cool, or cities are cool, or whatever. Um, it can be lore, it can be art, it can be stories. Uh, and you can even include game mechanics if it relates to one of those, although this discussion is not supposed to be just game mechanic focused. Hey, you're up. Okay. So I'll tell you what drew me to Soulblight. Um, I think one of the things that Soulblight gets to do that not a lot of other factions in the game, uh, or even 40k for that, for that matter, get to do is flexibility of flavor. Um, I'm a big guy when it comes to uh, culture in, in, in the kind of force you're presenting, like coming from guard, 
Uh, you have those those diehard players who you know make their own uh, Vestroians or whatever, and spend all this money and time kit bashing or whatever um, to create the culture that they want for their force. Um, and I think Soulblight does that just by virtue of being kind of a carryover from vampire counts and being all of these like more general um, horror tropes. The Age of Sigmar has kind of adapted that, I think, into hey, are you the kind of person that wants, you know, like the royal court aristocracy side of vampires? Uh, and you want, like, you know, you know, maybe Neferata with um, a bunch of blood knights who, you know, look nice and royal with a bunch of skeletons like running under them. That's cool. Buy those models, paint those models. You have a different flavor than, say, like a Verkos army player who, you know, wants Chattakar and, you know, a bunch of wolves and zombies and more of a, more of a, uh, you know, bestial side, more of a, more of a, less of a clean aesthetic. Um, and that's going to be different than, you know, if you want to play Manfred and have like Vargeis and, and fell bats and, and dire wolves and all of these, you know, dark creatures of the night that is available to you without having to pick up a sculpting tool or, or anything like that. Like you can instantly get into whatever flavor of the faction that you want. Um, yeah, you don't have to make concessions. That's right. Now, is there anything about the Soul Blade that transitions to tabletop stuff where you're like, this army is how I sexually identify uh, in a dice game? To touch on to touch on what I just said, or just in general? Yeah, does, does it touch on you know that mechanic wise? Like, uh, if you if you can build it your way, you know, like, if you can Burger yeah. King your Soul Blade graveyards onto the tabletop, like, you know, what works for you? Yeah, and, and that's one of the cool things is, and maybe it's just because they're, they happen to be good now, um, but if I wanted to play, you know, the Neferata army, right, I have the Legion of Blood sub-faction, and instead of being like, here are four sub-factions or five sub-factions, pick the hero that corresponds with that sub-faction and then take whatever is good. Um, Soulblight really rewards you for being like, I want to play a Legion of Night army, or a Legion of Blood army, rather. Um, all of the models that happen to fit into that I can take without feeling bad. Same thing with Virko. Same thing with, um, oh, what is it called? Avangori, the uh, the more like mutated monster uh, side of that. The rules really hold up what you want to do um, and what kind of horror tropes you gravitate to. Uh, to talk about Lumineth for a second, because that's the area I'm going to get into. Uh, you know what? As, as, as I decided to get into the Age of Sigmar, it was actually like just a wicked deal on an army. And there was a couple factions I was kind of drawn to. Ironically, they were all Order factions. I was kind of curious about Age of Sigmar for the Soulblight, but I just, I don't want to paint that many zombies. I don't love painting Grimdark. Um, I don't think you, like, my style is often a bit more clean, and I don't know if you can make, like, the undead. Maybe the Blood Knights, I guess. But, like, I still think you need skeletons and zombies, and so, you know, the painting definitely took an aspect into that. Uh, but I ended up doing the Lumineth, and the more I read about them, the more I loved them. I didn't love at first some of their models. And I was like, man, those helmets are goofy. But as I've been assembling them and looking at them and looking at them and looking at them and looking at them, you start seeing how just well designed they are, similar to what you're saying about Soulblight. That within this faction, we have multiple sub factions. And uh, I think that if you look at like the Goonhammer competitive innovations, that one of them is going to be mechanically better than the other right now in the context of everything else. But none of them are better on their own. And like, I have a lot of experience playing game systems. Uh, I've, I've won tournaments in multiple different game systems. And when I look at all the different factions you can build within the Lumineth, 
like the the Burger King Soul Blight build your way, it's uh, you can play any of them. And so it kind of like is what appeals to you. And when I look at Lumineth, uh, and and why I think someone should play them is that they can still do that. But now you're not playing dirty undead people. You're playing you know elf e girls or whatever your your elf faction of choice is. Um, and I love how they've written that into that. I also I love Warhammer Fantasy and I love the rank and file aspect. And uh, Lumineth actually rewards you for playing rank and file with a, a special rule called Shining Company. And if all your dudes are pretty much in rank and file, touching the base of two other guys, you get a bonus. Uh, you get minus one to be hit. And I think that that is such an elf thing to do. Uh, if we look at fantasy settings where they're supposed to be like a bit more elite, they're usually more well trained. They're exceptionally martial. And here we have like a very well disciplined military fighting force who's marching uh, in like in perfect lockstep. If you were to watch them or listen to them, you would hear not a foot out of place. And that's kind of reflected on the tabletop with a rule that makes sense. And that's cool. I did think about getting into uh, the the Wood Elves, the the Sylvaneth. And uh, I think that they also have a similar mechanic where they get to, you know, in the history of Wood Elves, they've always been a hit-and-run mechanic where you're not as much playing like that rush to the center. And it seems like, from a brief cursory outside glance, that they they do want to be hit-and-run. They want to hit you and they want to go back to their forest and teleport magically to another forest and then come at you from a different angle. Unless I've totally got them wrong. But as we're kind of bleeding into game mechanics now, I'd actually like to swap the conversation over to game mechanics and spend the next little bit talking about that. Because as I've been browsing through the core rules, the general handbooks, my individual... It's not called the Codex, Daniel. What's it called? Uh, a War Scroll? Battle Tome. A Battle Tome? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what I've been seeing is that they're just so well written. Like, it doesn't seem like we need to have, uh, you know, one battle tome to rule them all. And I know that some are overperforming others if we look at, you know, competitive ways of playing the game where you spam five of one unit or whatever else. But it just looks and, and feels so well written. And I, I strongly feel that it is just the game I wish 40k was. Uh, I played Techless the other game. If you played a Techless equivalent in 40k, he'd be gone turn one if you lost that initiative roll. But AOS isn't built like that. You get to bring your cool models and you get to play with them and they all do bullshit and that seems fucking really cool. So, uh, today I want to talk about specifically a couple of the rules that I think are just really cool and why you should get into the game because of it. And the first rule is the double turn mechanic. So for those of you who are new to AOS or unfamiliar with the system, uh, like 40k, we have a role for initiative. And, you know, you can choose to be the attacker or the defender. In the current season, whoever finishes their deployment first, so whoever, you alternate dropping models, like, I put a unit of spearmen down, you put some swordsmen down, I put something down, you put your dinosaur down. Uh, whoever finishes deploying their army first gets to choose whether they want to go first or go second. So there's a lot of, uh, like, strategy in determining, like, how many drops do you want, what information do I want to give my opponent. Old school fantasy was won or lost in deployment. If their big block was there and you had a way to counter that, you would wait till they drop that to drop yours, and then you would win the game. Age of Sigmar changes that. Because you wanna like you don't want to give your opponent all your information, but if you don't put enough down, they're gonna take the turn away from you and they can put you in a disadvantaged position. Age of Sigmar does something else that I think is the coolest game mechanic ever that no one looking at the system would say is a good mechanic. And that is the possibility for a double turn. Every single turn of the game. After that first one is a dice off. You you roll a d6, and whoever rolls higher gets to choose. Now, 
many players looking at the system can look at that and say, um, well, if you go second turn one, you could go first turn second turn two and have two turns in a row. And that's true. That is theoretically possible. But if we look at 40k or Infinity or, or Warhammer Fantasy or any other tabletop war game, the role to go first has been the most important role of the game, period. Here, we have that role five times. And every single time you make that role, it's impactful. So, Dan, I want you to start maybe first on just your thoughts about the, the double turn mechanic. Um, you know, what's your experience with it? Do you think that it's a good mechanic? Do you think that it is game-defining? If we roll into Age of Sigmar 4th edition next summer, do you hope that they keep it? Do you hope that it should go away? Just like, how, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I... Um, like, to me, it's fundamental to the system. Like, if it ever goes away, it would feel weird to me at this point. Um, the game is so built around that double-turn mechanic, and... It's a thing that, yeah, when you come in from a different game system that is used to, like, turn order staying the same, it can be super punishing at first. Um, and it it will, like, when you're not used to it, it's either going to be super rewarding or super punishing. And it's going to be nowhere in between. Because either you get the turns when you need them, and it's rewarded you, or you get the turns that you don't need, uh, or when you don't need them, and it just punishes you. But... When you learn the system and you learn how much back and forth there is within each turn anyways, you realize that the double turn mechanic isn't as detrimental as it first seems. Like, especially if you're coming from 40k. Like, if you put the double turn mechanic into 40k, holy crap, that would wreck that game completely. Um, because you have alternating fight phases. Um, no one ever has, I'll have all my guys fight first and then you fight. It's always a trade-off. So if a smart player plans for it, the double turn can be, yeah, it can be really helpful in a crunch moment. But it's also, if you plan for it and you're prepared, like a proper kind of general should be, and you don't get that double turn or you get double turned, you've prepared for it. Like you've set yourself up to take that hit or you know which battles to make. Like, the game, tabletop games are always all about making your opponent make choices. The more choices you make, make the harder the game is going to be for them to win. And so it, you just have to get smart with where you place, uh, place units. You have to get smart with using things like the redeploy command, which is incredible, one of my favorite commands in the game. Um, and I'm not then, sure if you're aware, Dan. There's a there's an Eldar stratagem in Warhammer 40k, which is essentially redeploy, and it has been called the strongest oh. stratagem ever printed. Okay, <laughs> they're the only faction that gets to make a movement in someone else's movement turn. But in Sigmar, every army in the game gets the ability, and it creates such counterplay. Yeah, right. I've I've won games just by getting good redeploys and good getting smart redeploys where. That smart redeploy at the right time, getting the right distance that I need, and moving in the right way to like make sure that I've threatened an opponent with something else. Can you explain what a redeploy is for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with it? <clears throat> so basically, the redeploy is a generic... Uh, if you're used to 40k, it would be a generic stratagem. In Sigmar, it's called a command ability. So anytime, uh, anytime basically a unit moves within nine inches of your units, you can spend a command point to redeploy them, 
which means you roll a d6 and move them that many inches in a way um, that will move you further away from that opponent. Um, so you can't move towards them. Um, there's certain little caveats that make it a little bit more difficult. Um, you have to either have a hero nearby, um, or you need to have a commander in your squad. Um, so some squads can issue the commands themselves if they have a commander in the squad, and other squads can't. Um, so like zombies can't issue commands to themselves. Um, I'm pretty sure. Right, Aiden? Zombies can't? No, they can't. Skeletons can, but zombies can't. Yeah. So there's certain units that are like the more mindless units or like animalistic units that can't issue commands to themselves. But that that can really change the out, outcome of a game and the outcome of a movement phase. You have just this way more interactivity between turns. Like you're you have way less sitting time during turns. Um, it's there's just more going on between both players and each player's turn. So as long as you're planning for that double turn it's not nearly as harsh as it can be. It's still clutch when you get it. Like, it's great when you are able to get it, and it's super helpful. But it's the same thing as getting off all the charges that you needed in 40k. Like, if you get off four out of four charges, that's clutch. That's great. But if you don't, then it's like you should still need to plan for that. Aiden, your thoughts on, you know, the double-term mechanic. Uh, like... Coming into the game, was it something where you're like, "Fuck yeah, this is cool"? Um, you know, are you are you gonna flip a table the first time you get double turned and lose because of it? Like, what what are your what are your thoughts and feelings? Um, yeah, so I think I think um, I don't know if we mentioned yet, but Arthur and I played our first full two thousand point game of Age of Sigmar on Thursday, um, and yeah, we didn't encounter that until turn four, I believe. Yeah, about around four, um, and so it wasn't really big for us and i'm glad it wasn't for our intro game because we've got to get you know a lot on our minds right but this conversation makes me wonder a few things like i don't think i don't think 40k could ever be restructured to support a double turn but i don't know if it could ever be restructured to or i think it could be restructured to make redeploy like transfer over into 40k and i wonder how that would change the game mm -hmm. um as far as how like we didn't do redeploy once in our game, uh, mostly because it was you know maybe you did. Okay, yeah. So Arthur did. How to get away from those fucking direwolves who right. got me anyway? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> launch across the board. Um, I I think it's amazing. I think that the meta games, the two meta games that are in like under um, under the glass kind of of the game, in that you know if you have less drops in your army, you take priority, and that's going to determine on the first battle round, I should say. And that's going to determine the entire game, including like what your chances are for double turning. Um, that is super cool to me um, that we have these more complex list building systems that reward that kind of higher tier play, as well as like triumphs, which I like. I, I think are less important, um, but that's if you if you have less points in your army than your opponent by five or ten or a hundred or whatever. Uh, I, I'm curious. Yeah, I wanted. I want to know how bad it feels after it actually happens to me on you know turn two and three or whatever. If I get if I get double turned, um, or how little I'm going to care. Um, I will say that I think that it makes the game much more competitive um, as a whole, and I think that casual players going into the game are like that's probably why we, there's there's a mass. Um, 
this case. How can that case, make it a more Aga? competitive game? That's that's what every single player listening to you right now is going to think. How can that make it a more competitive game if it's a random chance? Because you have to... So when you're playing 40k or, or another war game, you roll your first dice. You say, okay, cool. Like I'm, Or even before that, you're going to deploy in a way that's going to benefit whether or not you uh, go first or go second. You're going to be like, okay, I have a plan for this. I have a plan for that, right? And every battle round after that, up until your fifth, is kind of preset by that first deployment decision. The reason why that kind of has a cap is, well, if you and your player both, or your opponent both know um, loosely how to deploy and how to like play out your battle rounds or whatever, the game more or less that was going to happen happens anyways. Like you're going to have dice rolls where you spike or you don't do so well, but that's ultimately up to your... Um, to the way you're interacting with your opponent in right players playing in an optimal position you know it's yeah. becomes a trading game war spiders go here you kill them this unit goes there you kill exactly. them uh, um, and because they're going second i control this objective at the end of the game and i win 97 to 76. right and, and in aos it's still like you still have a little bit of that but introducing that chance for you, you know you need to plan because maybe you know two battle rounds ahead what are you going to do if you just get double turned right that adds so much more complexity to decision making in the early game and where you're positioning models. Because if you have like, if you have a unit that's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna dedicate this amount of points to a flank. Well, if you get double turned and you don't have like the resources to support that, you can just lose the game on that alone, right? Um, and to and you know, to the credit of the people who come to AOS because it is, you know, more of a, a quote unquote hobby game and and a little more casual quote unquote understand that it really isn't um you know you can play that way like like any game you can play however you like you know provided you have the people to play with that'll play with you that way but if you're looking for complexity uh competitively i think that this system of of uh priority roles and double turning 100 rewards that like you know giga brain 10,000 iq um positioning playing 5d chess while everyone else is playing checkers yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I kind of wonder if that that only works because of in tandem with what Dan was mentioning earlier on the fight phase. And Dan also talked about the command phase too. Well, the hero phase, but it gives you command points, yeah. which you can then do. So for, for any of the Age of Sigmar curious or, or faithful, or maybe new players getting into it who are listening right now, during your hero phase, at the start of the very first hero phase of every turn, um, you both get command points. And the player who's going second that turn gets an additional. Now, there are some ways to get, like, one or two more here or there, depending on uh, the way you structure your army or what characters you have. But, like, they're a pretty scarce resource. And they are would provide significant buffs that are the same. Every, every army has roughly the same action, barring some unique hero things uh, that you're going to use. And they are, like, what, plus one to hit, plus one save... You can maybe heal some wounds on a character. But the, 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 the plus one to hit and the plus one save are so game-changing, I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan. Um, yeah. And it yeah, also makes it the so interactive. Plus one to hit. It mm -hmm. makes it so interactive. Someone's coming at you, and you have to make decisions. Are you going to save that command point to redeploy, so maybe you make their charge harder to get off? Or are you going to accept that those fucking direwolves are going to get in on your stupid archers? And do you save that to make your armor better? Mm -hmm. One of the other things I'm noticing about this game is that the uh, the AP system, and this this is late in an edition. Uh, what every tome except for flesh eaters is out. Yeah, every tome except for flesh eaters. 
and whatever new tome they're going to release, maybe that Cities of Sigmar, I guess, that's in the range. Um, yeah. Uh, and the AP system has not gone wild. Um, AP zero is common. AP yeah. one is uncommon. And like as the data sheets I'm looking at, nothing has AP two. And I, I'm sure that there is things, but like it, it seems like it's quite rare. And like for things to have AP three or AP four, like uh, or or I guess in in Sigmar terms, we're calling that rend one or rend two or rend minus one. Yeah. Uh, it, it's rare, right? Like, so it makes these command point systems really worth it and interactive. And to that, we have a lot more wounds being lost because the save, the average save, I think, on most things is like at a four or five. Like, you'll have, you know, mm -hmm. centerpiece models like Indrasta or whatever who are maybe on a three or something. But um, for the most part, it's it's super high. So we have a lot of interaction. You're not going to deal with a situation where, you know, someone's popping all out defense and then you're sitting there your entire army trying to chip off at a gargant or something um and nothing happens right you have a lot of interaction the game feels like it's moving mm -hmm. forward because of these smaller rent values it's not as feels bad but higher saves but also like and dan, barely any invone saves yeah exactly dan what is the most common like dice roll in in sigmar in warhammer 40k it's a three up everything has a three up and the game is balanced yep. around the three up what is it for sigmar Probably four, honestly, I would say. Like, uh, your average troops are, like, hit on four or wound on four. And if one of them is a three, the other one's usually a four. Um, it's really hard to find units that are hitting and wounding on both threes. Right. Um, like, these like are that, our elite but, units. Yeah. Yeah, and even your elite units, it's like, lots of the Stormcast, I think, are still even then like hitting on threes wounding on fours or something or vice versa um and those are some of your most elite um so it's rare to get things that are like hitting on twos wounded on twos like it takes a lot to get there or it takes a special model to get there i think one of the ways that agency bar has counterbalanced this uh and it's a way that in which 40k i think enacted poorly is the mortal wounds mechanic age of sigmar did it first i think that they've done it best um, and a mortal wound is the same as 40k. You're not taking a save, although you can take, you know, your fetal no pain or your, or your ward save, as it's called in Sigmar. Uh, and those seem like there is a fair amount of those running around. But I think it's as almost as a counterbalance. Am, am I wrong? It feels like it feels like wards almost like the substitute for invulnerable saves. That's yeah. that's what it feels like looking through data sheets. Um, <laughs> yeah, because because it has to make because invulnerable saves in AOS, you know wouldn't matter if everything like you say is at a zero one or like in rare cases a two or three um this is kind of your your way around that i think mm -hmm. and then you've got they have kind of like the invulnerable saves that exist in sigmar are they don't have a universal name for them but typically the way they usually work is like the night haunts where their save factor can never be modified so oh, it can like either be negatively or positively. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like so you don't get any positives to your save, but you don't get any negatives to your save. So it's you're like still awesome taking mortals if they come at you. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many mortals in <laughs> Sigmar. Like everyone is throwing mortals out. And I think that when we talk about like you know the armor system here and uh, like the lethality of the game, when you look at it on a whole. Uh, 
that the mortals aren't as oppressive as everyone made it to seem. Oh, you're going to play Sigmar? Fucking mortals everywhere and the double turn, right? It mm-hmm. Mechanically, it seems fine coming from a very competitive tournament mm-hmm. player from Warhammer. As we close on our podcast, there's uh, about two more things here I want to talk about. Um, the final roundtable of our, of our discussion here is, what is your favorite like mechanical part about the rules? If there's one thing that you want to be like, this is the, the creme de la creme, about Age of Sigmar, uh, what is it? I'll go first, give you guys the chance to think about that. Uh, I love the spell phase. So, I think that Warhammer Fantasy actually did the spell phase the best between Fantasy and 40k, because you got dice, and there was this interactive part. Like, the the defending player always could stop, like, one spell, maybe two, and then maybe more, depending on if they had certain levels of wizards. So you had to play a game of, like, all right, like... How can, I, how can I get the minimum to, to cast this to, to force some of your dice so we can get the stuff I really want out? Sometimes it was hard because for vampires, there was a couple spells you needed to stop, but there was other spells you wanted to stop. And so it really was a game. For, for 40k recently, th- there is no spell phase anymore. It's gone. There's almost no interactivity in it. But uh, for Sigmar, it seems like there's still that. That, you know, you have wizards and you're going to get powers off, but the deny range is 30 inches. And you can pretty much always have the chance to deny. And they just introduced new mechanics with this new season where you get an extra dice if you have a, a primal, a primal, an Andor and Locust. And uh, so it really gives you a chance like, oh, they got a Horfrost coming up. That's a really powerful spell. Absolutely not. You're not getting it off. And only one caster probably has that spell. So it seems like it's just really, really super interactive. And I think in any game like this, interactive is what makes it best. Um, rock, paper, scissors, whoever wants it can get it. Uh, what is your favorite mechanical part of this game? You can go ahead, Dan. I, you kind of, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. Like the spells are my favorite, um, which is, I don't really have with my beast of chaos, um, that much, but like my Seraphon, it's just like, I love, I live and die in the hero phase with my Seraphon. It's just like, no, I just want to do all the spells all the time. Just wild crap is going off. Like we're just sending comets at people. We're slowing time down. We're making people fly. Like I just love that wild craziness. Um, but I also love the like um, things like a lot of the flavor rules really make me happy about the game. Um, like that they found a way to make summoning work because there are so many armies in uh, Sigmar that get free units. And that seems insane. I like as a 40k player, if you're coming into Sigmar and you're like, what these guys just get a full greater demon for free because I've just been punching you. And that's what you want me to do is like, if I punch you more, you get more demons. That's crazy. And it works. It balances like it. They found a way to make that work where it's not oppressive. Like the armies that have summoning units are not the ones that are constantly at the top of the meta. Like, they found a way to let armies be fluffy while not being oppressive. And there there will be times where they do become oppressive. Like, shooting for a while was pretty oppressive, but then they brought in the Seasons of War. And the Seasons of War really brought down the shooting as the meta game. And now, magic is is the thing that's ruling the roost but even then it's still it can get brought down because it has this kind of like give take mechanic with this new season where it's like yeah you can throw out more dice to 
get off your really good spells, but also if you roll any doubles, your wizard blows up. Like, it's a really nice way to balance things out. And I just love that about the game, that there's such really crazy, fluffy rules. Like, um, pink horrors. That's probably my favorite thing about the game. The fact that you kill pink horrors and they split. And you kill blue horrors and they split. And that's what I want from them. Like, that's the most Zinchian thing to have happen in their army is just, like, you're trying to kill this thing and it's not really that deadly, but it just won't go away. It just keeps multiplying is so fun. Um, yeah, there's just, like, so many ridiculous characters, rules, and mechanics that work. Um, they are fun and they work. They don't feel oppressive. Aiden, your favorite, uh, you know, mechanical rules part of Age of Sigmar. All right. Well, uh, I'll jump off kind of with dancing. Um, I think you can definitely feel the top-down design in AOS. Um, you have, like, for example, the primal dice thing. Like, you know that somebody sitting in, in, in the room there wasn't going, hey, how do we make spellcasting better? They were thinking, hey, how do we, you know, we're in Gur. We have, you know, all this wild bestial magic or whatever. What mechanic can we make that supports this ability, right? And and it sounds like duh, right? But if you look at a lot of what 40k does, that's for sure not what it is, right? Like you'll have you'll have like I remember like let's use the Octarius um, season or whatever it was called way back when. The most flavorful thing that that pack did was rename the data salvage data scry action to retrieve Octarius data. like that was the most flavorful thing they did right and it feels like because they, they wanted mechanics first and they were kind of going to build off what they loosely wanted for story <laughs> everything here feels like you know they want they started with the story they started what do we want players to feel when they're doing this and then they wrote rules to kind of make that happen right we have like to draw to draw an analogy between my two armies here guard right you'll have your four data sheets your four infantry data sheets that all represent like the different cultures you have death core Cree, you have cadia right and then they'll change around some like rules like oh cadians you know have have sticky objectives and then krieg if they're less than full strength they get some bonuses right and that's cool but in a game of 40k i can change out those two and barely feel anything whereas if i'm playing soul blight if I take a hundred skeletons, my game is going to look way different than if I take a hundred or maybe eighty zombies and then like you know a grave cart and a necromancer. If I if I make these decisions in list building, I'm going to get the feeling that I want out of those units versus you know forty k where you're taking what's good. You're taking what's good, not necessarily what uh, you want out of it, right? Like my uh, Ursula Creed giving an order to whatever like a tipesta scion it might never ever happen in lore but that doesn't matter because it might be the best combination at the time it feels like here everything was written where you want necromancers and grave carts and all these like different things uh we're like how do we make them work together and then they wrote rules for that yeah i i i, I agree it seems like that's what they're going for and when i look at lumineth uh it's like if you want to play the stone temple it all it all works together and you know what you get you get rewarded for for playing what looks like a narrative army um i think maybe sometimes the narrative players are onto something like regardless of whether you see yourself as more of a competitive player or a narrative player 
like like you said, it looks kind of goofy to watch Ursula Creed order some Tempasta Skyans around, and 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 they do their bullshit. Uh, it would make sense for Ursula Creed to order Cadians around, and I think that's what Age of Sigmar uh, reinforces you to do. Um, as we close out today, uh, for anyone listening, I really want to encourage you to sign up for that slow grow. Um, for anyone who's like even just a little bit curious, a Vanguard box almost gets you to 750. You buy two, you're halfway there. You fill in with the other models you need. You got a full army, and you know you can play a game. And I promise you, you will have fun playing this game. You can bring the coolest models on the tabletop, and that shit's not gonna get blown up turn one. You're gonna get a few turns at them, uh, and it is just—it's just such an awesome game. And it's there. There are so many closet AOS gamers that are coming out now, uh, so that's great. Please sign up for the slow grow if you're even a little bit curious. Uh, we got some awesome people in there. We're at 25. I want to see us get to 40. And if we get a little bit more support for that, we're gonna be able to throw a little bit more support back at the community. Uh, we're gonna be able to run some more events. And then, you know, we have a great thing. So, sign up for that. Uh, and and as we close out today, I just wanted to, to, you know, throw out a little bit of, like, what you should check out. So, what is the best AOS content on the web? Uh, I discovered there's a battle report place called Season of War. It has been the best battle report I've ever seen. They're like a 30-minute thing. I think they learned a bit from Play on Tabletop. But rather than do the minute-by-minute the minute section uh, during the turn... They uh, fast forward it and they have this awesome narrator who kind of sounds a little bit to me like the narrator from Baldur's Gate 3 or Divinity 2 uh, who narrates what goes on. And the best part is she's a bit cheeky. I watched a Lumineth game where Teclas did something and she's like, fucking Teclas. And I think everyone felt that at that moment. He put out like, you know, 20 mortal wounds with his uh, his stuff. Everyone was thinking fucking Teclas. She went out and said it and it was really fun. But she does that for everything. So you should check out Season of War on YouTube. Uh, I'll throw it over to to Aiden first. You know what uh, what Age of Sigmar content on the web might you suggest someone take a look at, and then we'll throw it at Daniel before we wrap up for the night. Yeah, so I think uh, Vince Venturella is uh, you know Arthur and I are both fans. Um, he's primarily a a hobby YouTuber. Uh, if you need to see you know how to do shading metallics or whatever, right? He has a video for it. Um, but more specifically with AOS, he does a podcast. I don't know the name of it. Something, Warhammer something. Weekly. Warhammer Weekly. Thank you very much. Uh, where he touches on new rules, like how they, like whether or not they're good, whether or not they're uh, terrible. Um, he touches on like you know little hobby things. Um, it, it's it's a nice overall podcast to kind of engross yourself into what it's like to be somebody who regularly plays AOS. And I think that's very valuable. Somebody who is is just coming into it. It certainly has been for myself. Um, and I think. If you are a competitive head like myself or Arthur, um, I'm going to shout out uh, Stormkeep. So I, I came across these guys on accident the other week, um, and they provide something that I don't think very much else on YouTube has, which is like a super crunchy look at AOS, uh, specifically through the lens of, of Stormcast Eternals, which I don't play, but listening to them talk about why certain units in Stormcast are good why certain lists are good uh you know what fits the better or whatever gives me enough context as a as a competitive player to for my own opinions about my armies um through that lens right uh we don't have a lot of that so if you you know have a chance uh pop up one of their podcasts it doesn't really matter about what um if it's like loosely interesting to you and maybe you'll learn something daniel uh some age of sigmar content on the web if you could recommend anyone for 
for someone who's new getting into Age of Sigmar or returning or someone that everyone should know about? Who, who are you throwing out there? Um, well, I'm going to be self-serving at first and say check hmm. out Reforged, the comic that I do for Age of Sigmar on WarhammerCommunity.com. Um, uh, so there's that to check out. It gives you a glimpse at what its life is like in kind of the mortal realms, especially for the average person. Um, but uh, on top of that, I would put out, uh, especially for lore, um, 2 Plus Tough on YouTube. Really enjoy his videos. He does a great job of talking about uh, kind of doing summaries on the different lore. Um, and he goes over everything, um, all the way from like the Age of Myth to the Age of Chaos to our current storyline. Um, and he does a really great job of covering everything. Um, and he works with Goonhammer now. And uh, other than that, um, Top Tactics has finally jumped onto Age of Sigmar, and I've always enjoyed their content. Um, so, and they've been doing a really good job, um, especially if you start from the beginning. There's not many videos in their Age of Sigmar catalog. Um, so, if you're a new player, it's kind of nice to watch them play, um, especially if you're a new player who enjoys competitive things, um, but also having fun because the majority of the tabletop crew is learning Age of Sigmar. There's basically one guy in the crew that knew Age of Sigmar before they started kind of like really doing battle reports on it. And so it's neat to see them slowly progress and learn the game and learn the different mechanics. And the nice thing is when they start, they don't start using all of the rules. They kind of do it like most people would do with learning the game, is they start simple and then work their way up. Um, plus their armies are gorgeous because, uh, they're all painted by, oh, I forget his name, but, um, Fletcher does an incredible job. Um, so they're gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous armies. So yeah, those would be my recommendations. I think you're muted, Arthur, if you're there. Yeah. No! <laughs> I was actually just shouting out Dan here. Uh, he said check out his Reforged, but he's got a bunch of other uh, content, and I believe you can find him pretty much anywhere on the socials that exist by searching uh, Smash Head Studios. Uh, and he's got some really cool stuff, and he takes commissions, I think, for some art here and there. So, uh, an incredibly talented individual who we're very fortunate to have here. Um, I also want to thank our Patreon, so thank you Chris, Ed, Frederick, Dustin, and Tyler for supporting uh, Trident Wargaming Podcast. You help us put the lights on and pay the bills. Uh, we are looking in the future to uh, add some Patreon perks. You know, some things like maybe Patreons get first chance to sign up at our events, which sell out like that. And, uh, you know, please, if you can support us on Patreon, it really helps. Uh, look out for more information for the Trident stuff for our uh, Christmas social. Okay, we got a winter event that's uh, kind of open to anyone. It, it, there will be tickets for it. We have a limited amount of spaces, but it's uh, the great chance to, you know, uh, have a beer with some community members. You can bring the family out. You know, I know my wife's coming. Uh, you can maybe roll some dice. I think we're going to do like maybe a small bit swap. And uh, we're going to do something for donations too. So I think we're going to take in some maybe stuff for the food bank. So it's a chance to kind of give back to those in need, especially during that time of year. Uh, we have Hallowtide coming up. So our, our Halloween themed uh, Warhammer event. This time it's 40k. And we got a really cool chance to try out a slightly different type of event in Highlander, which I am incredibly excited about. And then come the new year, we got a lot of good stuff that I can't quite announce yet, so stay tuned for that. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Dan for and Aiden for coming on the podcast. 
And I will see you on the next one. Did you plug the Patreon? We need to plug the Patreon.